0: Well, this morning, my first presentation, we've got three, and so uh, we'll work our way through this, is the Great Commission, or uh, as we call it in the book, Divine Commission. Now, you know the background of the story. Jesus was assembled with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. He was about to lead them and ascend to his Father in heaven. But Jesus, again, reminded the disciples of their mission. Uh, Matthew 28 gives us the Divine Commission, something very similar is found in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus told his disciples that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. Now, for the disciples to be successful in the mission that Jesus had called them to do, there were several things that they needed to realize. First of all, they needed to realize that in their own strength, they could not accomplish the task that Jesus had given them. They needed divine help. And so that all began there in the upper room in Jerusalem, spending time in prayer coming together, being united in this great commission of taking the gospel to the world, that's when the Holy Spirit came with power. And in one generation, they turned the world upside down. So evangelism begins with that connection with Jesus. Because evangelism is not just conveying a set of beliefs or ideas, but it's introducing people to a person. That person is Jesus. And you can't introduce somebody to Jesus if you don't really know Jesus. So evangelism in its very core is sharing with somebody else what Jesus has done for you. Does that make sense? If you don't have an experience to share, then why should somebody listen? If you're just talking about a theoretical Jesus, not a personal Jesus, well, they can read that in a book. You want to share with them a personal experience that you've had with Jesus. What has Jesus done for you? How has Jesus changed your heart and your life? That's important when it comes to evangelism. So we're going to be talking about this Great Commission a little bit this morning. Evangelism is really the heartbeat of the church. That's why we are here. Now, I'm going to veer a little bit off the notes, so don't, don't worry if it's not exactly the same. Um, but that's why the Seventh-day Adventist Church is here. God raised up the Adventist Church to do a special work in these final moments of Earth's history. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 9, we have this famous quote. The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men." It was organized for what reason? For service. What is its mission? To carry the gospel to the world. So God organized the church, the purpose of which to take the gospel to the world. That connected with the Great Commission. So from the very beginning of the Adventist church, we've been a missionary-minded church. For a period of time, the church somewhat stagnated in its mission in the late 1800s, early 1900s, until there was a, a... re-emphasis on the importance of taking the gospel to the world. I think we're all familiar with the early days of the Advent movement, with the proclamation of the Judgment Hour message, uh, early 1840s up to 1844, there was great emphasis on talking about uh, Jesus' coming. After 1844, there were some other beliefs that got connected with that, but it was not fully understood that the gospel was to go to all the world as we were the ones to take the gospel to the world. Back then, the understanding was that because in North America we have representation from almost all the world, preaching in America, to some degree, would accomplish that mission. But it was after 1844, even later on in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that uh, the Adventist movement really began to realize that we need to go to them. It's not so much them coming to us, but we need to go to all the world in proclaiming the three angels' message. So there was a big surge of missionary activity in the early 1900s, late 1800s, but really began to swell early 1900s, and Adventists went around the world preaching the three angels' messages. And today you can go to just about anywhere in the globe and you can find a group of Sabbath-believing Adventists, just about everywhere, a few places yet where we haven't really been able to make inroads into certain groups. But by and large, the gospel is going out to all the world, because the Great Commission says you must go. So from the early days of the the Advent movement, we realized the importance of missionary activity. Of course, that's still true today. So understanding evangelism, three questions we want to consider. They worded a little differently in your book, but they're the same questions. What is evangelism? Who does evangelism? Why do we do evangelism? I think in the book it's worded here. Let's see on page, is it eight? Yes. What's God's role for my life? What is my role in evangelism? And how can I hasten the coming of Christ? Those are updated questions, but they're the same ideas behind. So first of all, it begins with what is evangelism? It's interesting to note that evangelism in the Bible, uh, Bible uses verbs and not nouns when talking about evangelism. In other words, evangelism isn't a passive waiting, but it's an act of going. It's not waiting for people to come to you, but it's going out and finding those who have never heard the word, building relationships with them. So the church is commanded to go, to go to all the world preaching the gospel. Evangelizo is a Greek word that means to preach the gospel. Now what does the word gospel mean? It means good news. Do we have good news to share with the world? Yes, Yes, we do. If you look at the three angels' messages found in Revelation chapter 14, the first angel begins by describing an angel having the everlasting gospel or good news to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, the word gospel or good news has an interesting root. As far as we can tell, it was first used by the Greek-speaking residents Of ancient Alexandria. And they were dependent upon grain that had to be brought to them in ships. And when these ships laden with grain would come into the port of Alexandria, somebody in the city was given the mission of heralding the good news that these grain ships had arrived. And that work of proclaiming the good news eventually became known as gospel. Someone was to proclaim the gospel or the good news the grain ships had arrived. It's interesting to note that when the Bible writers were looking for a word to describe the good news that Jesus, the living bread, has come from heaven to provide spiritual life, they used the word gospel or good news, the proclamation of good news. Now, do we have good news to share with the world? What is that good news that we have to share with the world? Jesus? What else? The three angels' message, how is the three angels' message good news? If anyone worships the beast or his image or receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Does that sound like good news? <laughs> Sometimes warning is good news, Right? Not only is it a warning about the beast and about Babylon, but it also tells us how we can worship God in truth. The first angel's message defines true worship. The next two angels warn us about false worship. So if you're walking a certain way, and that way is leading to death, and somebody tells you, hey, wait a minute, there is a better path that leads to life, that's good news for them, right? Turns their life around. So the everlasting gospel is connected with the three angel's messages, There are a lot of truths clustered in that, but in truth, it is God's mission to save mankind. And it's how we can be saved. Jesus is the center of all that we do, especially as it relates to the three angels' messages. I'm sure we'll talk more about that later on this morning. Now, two reasons why people hate evangelists is because of doomsayers and propagandists. Why people are a little nervous when someone tries to do evangelism. Are you trying to convince me to... Do something that I don't want to do. Do you really have good news? We need to remember that it's not our job to convert the heart. Only God can change the heart. But what we want to do is bring people into connection with Jesus. Because it's Jesus that softens the heart. So through our preaching, our teaching, our Bible studies, the goal is to connect people to Jesus. And then it's to be sent in evangelism. I found this little uh, drawing one time. Uh, It's about evangelism. I know you can't read it, so I'll just read the text for you there above. First of all, here's our little Christian friend. He's standing right there, and he's got a little Bible tract in his hand. He's got a glow tract, and uh, he says, well, looks over to this chap here, and he says, I think this man needs a tract, is what he's saying right there. Well, here is this guy. It says, shallow thoughts, shallow thoughts, not much happening there, smoking, drinking, and so our friend sneaks up on him. He's going to do some evangelism. So he pounces on the man, bonsai, he says, believe or die. And he stuffs his little track down the man's throat, says, take my track and believe. Well, in fear, the man that he's trying to reach turns and runs away. He watches him disappear. You must believe, he says, after he goes, well, at least I sowed some seeds. (laughs) How successful do you think that evangelism is? Probably not that successful, Right. Jesus has given us a method in how we can bring good news to people. The sharing of the three angels' message is good news. So let's talk about that for just a few moments. Just as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 4 was a special message Jesus gave His disciples that they would bear to the world, so there is a special end-time message that God has given the Adventist church to take to the world, and it's the three angels' messages. You find that in Revelation chapter 14. But I want to go back two chapters before you get to Revelation 14. Well, actually, four chapters before you get to Revelation 14. And you have Revelation chapter 10, because that sort of forms the foundation of the proclamation of the three angels' messages. Now, what do you find in Revelation chapter 10? Revelation 10 describes an angel coming down from heaven, and he has a little book that's open in his hand. you familiar with this uh, prophecy? And he sets his one foot upon the earth... And where does he put his other foot? On the sea. Oh, on the sea. Okay. So the angel has a little, hand, a little book in his hand, Sits his one foot upon the earth, his other foot upon the sea. And then he lifts his other hand and swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the things that are there in the earth and the things that are there in the sea and the things that are there, that there should be time no longer. But at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God will be revealed as he has declared unto his servants the prophets. And then seven thunders utter their voice, and John's about to write, and he hears a voice saying, don't write down what the seven thunders utter. And then, finally after this experience, John then is told to go take the little book, which is opening the angel's hand. And what is John told to do with the book? He needs to eat the book. And so he does. And when he eats the book, the book is what in his mouth? Sweet as honey in his mouth, but as soon as he, stu- he swallows it, what happens? turns his stomach bitter. Then after that, he has a message. Uh, Let's see, if someone will read for us the last verse of Revelation chapter 10. Do you have that for us? Okay, so the angel says, you must prophesy again. So that then would assume that there was some prophesying taking place before the book was eaten, right? right? You must prophesy again. Your work's not finished. It's scarcely begun. Now, what is Revelation chapter 10 all about? Revelation 10 is a description of the early Advent movement uh, around 1840 through to 1844. The angel coming down from heaven represents a heaven-sent message that came to the earth during that time of great interest in prophecy in the early 1800s. Here in North America, probably the most well-known figure leading the Advent movement was William Miller, but there were some elsewhere in the world that were also preaching, based upon the prophecies of the book of Daniel, that Jesus is soon to come. The verse in particular that had great significance to the early Millerite or Adventist believers was Daniel 8, 14. The 2,300 days, then the sanctuary should be cleansed. Now, how did they connect that with the second coming of Jesus? They thought the earth was the sanctuary, and what would be the cleansing of the sanctuary? Jesus would come, and the fire would consume the earth or cleanse the earth from sin. So they thought the cleansing of the sanctuary is the second coming of Christ. But when Jesus didn't come as they had thought, they experienced a bitter disappointment. A few other things just to note there. Uh, Did the disciples expect that Jesus was soon to establish an earthly kingdom all the way up to his crucifixion? Did they even think that Christ was going to establish an earthly kingdom after the resurrection? As yes. a matter of fact, you read in Acts chapter 1, the disciples said to Jesus, well, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, no, just go be my witnesses. Don't worry about that. Well, that'll come. So it wasn't quite clear in the minds of the disciples the nature of the kingdom or the work that Jesus was doing. Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom. We call it the kingdom of grace. When he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was referenced to the kingdom of grace. The kingdom of grace would prepare the way for the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of glory is when Jesus comes again, right? So they didn't quite understand the work that Jesus was doing. So likewise the early Advent believers, they did not fully understand the work that Jesus was doing for them in the heavenly sanctuary. They, like the disciples, were looking for the kingdom of glory when Christ was still building up His kingdom of grace. Does that make sense? And in order for the kingdom of grace to be fully built up, there was a special work that Jesus had to do, a work of cleansing in the heavenly sanctuary. And that's what was referenced in Daniel eight fourteen. 14. 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, the disciples didn't quite understand that, and they went through their bitter disappointment when Jesus was crucified. It was only afterwards that Jesus was able to explain to them, and they began to understand the nature of the kingdom of a nature of the work that Jesus had called them to do. So likewise, the early Advent believers, they had to go through a bitter disappointment, a painful experience, but as they went through that experience, they began to understand clearer what their mission was, what the work was that Jesus wanted them to do. Now, a very important verse. Now, just to back up there a little bit. So the angel comes down from heaven. He has the little book open in his hand. The little book is the book of Daniel. It's a little prophetic book that has a mysterious time element because it says, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet when he's about to sound, the mystery of God will be revealed as he has declared to his servants, the prophets. So there is a mysterious time aspect or something that's not fully understood in the little book of Daniel. Now the book is open, meaning it was sealed, but now it's open, It's referring to the book of Daniel. Now, then John is told to eat the book. It's sweet, in mouth, bitter in his stomach. That describes the early Advent experience. Following that, by the way, what does it mean to eat the book? To read it, to study it. Jeremiah chapter 15, 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. So after this experience, then John is told, You must prophesy again. And that's where the chapter ends. Now you know that the chapter divisions in the Bible were not inspired. For the most part, the Bible writers or translators did a very good job, It's actually the translators, in providing us some guidance with verses and chapters. But I think in this case, the first two verses of chapter 11 really belong with chapter 10. What is John given following that message, you must prophesy again? He's given a read, and he's told to do something. What does he have to do? Measure. What is it that John has to measure? The temple of God and the altar and what else? Those who worship therein. Now, what does it mean to measure? Way? Now, if, if I wanted to know the length of this room, how would I find that out? I'd have to measure. It. How would I measure it? I need to get some kind of a a standard, a ruler, or a tape measure. Now the reed is a ruler or a tape measure. That's what they used back in Bible times. So it was a reed with markings on it, like a giant ruler. And that was used for measuring. And if I were to measure the length of this room, I'd run my tape measure from one side to the other. I would compare the length of the room with the absolute standard. In essence, I'm doing a work of judging. Are you all with me? I'm comparing something with the absolute standard. The context, when the angel says to John, you must prophesy again, the context of this prophesying is the context of measuring. It's the context of judging or judgment. So the angel says, you must prophesy again, and then it has to do with measuring. What needs to be measured? The temple, the altar, those who worship therein. So there is a work of judging, a work of cleansing. It wasn't until after the early Advent believers went through this experience that they began to realize the nature of the gospel that they were to take to the world. It is a measuring gospel. It is a judgment type of gospel centered in Jesus and His high priestly ministry for us in heaven. Now, Revelation 10 says, But at the sounding of the seventh trumpet... When he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be revealed. Now, let me grab my Bible out of here. Where do you find the sounding of the seventh trumpet? I'll give you a clue. It's in Revelation. (laughs) Revelation 11. I'll give you more of a clue. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Now notice, don't miss this. Revelation 10 says, At the sounding of the seventh trumpet, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery shall be revealed. So there was a mystery connected with the little book of Daniel that was not fully understood until the seventh trumpet sounded. Well, what is the sounding of the seventh trumpet? You find in verse 15, Revelation 11, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, what is being introduced there when it says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, is that talking about the kingdom of grace or the kingdom of glory? That's the kingdom of glory. It's talking about the second coming of Jesus. But I want you to note, this announcement is made in heaven before Jesus actually comes back to the earth. Because look at what's happening on the earth when this announcement is made in heaven. Verse 16 says, And the twenty-four elders that sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces, worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. It's talking about the kingdom of glory. Look what's happening on the earth, though. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So is their life still going on on earth when the seventh trumpet begins to sound in heaven? Yes. yes. What's the condition of things on the earth? Not very good. The nations are angry, right? Your wrath has come. What is the wrath of God? Seven last plagues are being poured out. And it says the time that you should judge and give rewards to your servants and destroy those who destroy the earth. That happens right at the second coming. Then verse 19 says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. So what is the focus of Christ's area of ministry in heaven when the seventh trumpet sounds? Day of Atonement, but where about is it in the heavenly sanctuary? It's in the most holy place because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. So when it's talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary or the measuring of the sanctuary, it's talking about a final work of cleansing that Jesus does in heaven and on the earth just prior to the second coming of Christ. Now, what do we mean when it says the cleansing of the sanctuary? Is Jesus cleansing a building up there in heaven? Well, yes, in one sense he is. Why does heaven need to be cleansed anyway? All right, we learn from the Old Testament story. The day of atonement, all the sins that have been confessed throughout the year were symbolically stored up in the sanctuary. On the day of atonement, they were cleansed. They were removed as the high priest ministered for the final time, doing a special work of cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, how many sanctuaries do we read about in the Bible? I'll give you a clue. Well, I I heard two, the heavenly and the earthly. Now, when I say the earthly, I'm talking about the one that Moses built, that was followed by Solomon's, that was rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. That's all the earth. So that's just two. Know you're not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Okay, that's three. What about another one? Jesus said destroy this temple and in 3 days I'll raise it up again. Did Jesus refer to himself as a temple, his body? Yes. Or the church, are we not all living stones put together to form a temple for God, the temple of God? So the Bible does speak about 5 temples or sanctuaries. The cleansing of the sanctuary that Jesus is doing for us in heaven includes a cleansing in all 5. Of these temples. The Day of Atonement in the Old Testament was used to cleanse an earthly sanctuary, but of course that's met its fulfillment. We have the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, which is a record of the sins. That is something that is going on now. But the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is really a reflection of the cleansing that Jesus is doing in the church and in the individual. What is the purpose of a sanctuary. What is it that God told Moses? God said, build me a sanctuary for what reason? That I might dwell amongst my people. Why did God need a sanctuary to dwell amongst His people? They had to turn their back upon the world, to teach people how to approach God. What happens if God would have shown up with the Shekinah glory unveiled by the sanctuary? All right, the Israelites would have been destroyed. Why would they have they been destroyed? Because of their sins. The purpose of the sanctuary is to take care of the sin problem so God can dwell with these people. That's true for all five sanctuaries. They're all of the same purpose. The purpose of the sanctuary is to take care of the sin problem so that God can dwell with his people because sin separates us from God. We can't be in the presence of God if we are having sins in our hearts. So the sins have to be cleansed, has to be removed. Of course, that was shown to us in type through the earthly sanctuary and the cleansing of the earthly sanctuary. But why did Jesus come? Oh, by the way, before I ask you that question, what would have happened if Jesus appeared on the earth Uh, with all of his glory that he had in heaven before he came to the earth. What would have happened? People would have been destroyed, right? So Jesus veiled his divinity in humanity, just like the tent. looked like any other tent from the outside. It was a little bit bigger. But, But inside the tent, the glory of God was revealed. So Jesus looked like any other person, but the glory of God was on the inside, Right? And Jesus came to this earth to reveal the character of God and to take care of the sin problem so that God could dwell with His people. Jesus died on the cross to take care of the sin problem so we can be forgiven. Does that make sense? Now the Bible says, Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us? To transform us. And what does that involve? Taking care of the sin problem so that God can dwell with us. Are you with me? To make us His witnesses. So the purpose of the sanctuary is to take care of the sin problem so God can dwell with us. That's why the Holy Spirit is working within our hearts and lives. What is the Holy Spirit trying to do? Take care of the sin problem within us so that we can dwell in the presence of God. What is the purpose of the church in the earth today? To preach the gospel. The gospel takes care of the sin problem so that God can dwell amongst us. Does that make sense? Why is there a heavenly sanctuary? The heavenly sanctuary takes care of the sin problem, not only of the earth, but of the entire universe, so that finally the new Jerusalem can come down to this earth the sin problem is finally taken care of. No more sin, no more sinners, and God can dwell with us. Does that make sense? Is there a sanctuary in heaven? Yes. The entire book of Hebrews tells you that. Is there a sanctuary in heaven after Jesus comes? Well, yes and no, but here's the point. Yes, there is a sanctuary after Jesus comes. We go back to heaven for how long? A thousand years. Will there be a sanctuary in heaven during the thousand years? But at the end of the thousand years, when the New Jerusalem comes down and the earth is recreated, then John says, looking into the New Jerusalem, I saw no sanctuary there. Where is the sanctuary? Why is the sanctuary not there? What's the purpose of the sanctuary? To take care of the sin problem. And at the end of the thousand years, when the final judgment occurs, and sin and sinners are no more, there's no need for a work of cleansing that came along with the sanctuary. Does that make sense? So the sanctuary has accomplished its job. What happens to us when Jesus comes the second time? Those who are alive. We are translated. How come we can be translated? We are changed. Why? Because the sin problem within us has been taken care of these earthly sanctuaries are no longer needed. Does that make sense? So the purpose of the sanctuary is to take care of the sin problem. Now, to get back to the early Advent movement, at the end of that experience that we read about in um, Revelation chapter 10, you must prophesy again. The prophesying is in the context of the measuring. The measuring is in the context of the judgment. That's why the first angel's message says, Fear God. Give Him glory. The hour of His judgment has come. Now, we need to be clear on what this means, because this is good news. When we're talking about judgment, we're talking about measuring. When we're talking about measuring, we're talking about cleansing. It's all the same thing. Three words describing the same experience. This cleansing, this judgment, is a work that Jesus does in us. It is Jesus that cleanses us the heart. It is Jesus that cleanses the church. It is Jesus that cleanses the universe finally from sin. It is a work that Jesus does. But Jesus can't do a work of cleansing in us if we don't come to Him to be cleansed. The measuring that we read about in Revelation chapter 11 is not a one-time experience. It's a day-by-day experience. As we come to Jesus every day to be measured, or to be judged, God is able to cleanse the heart. Anyone who comes to Jesus with sincerity, asking, Lord, measure me, cleanse me, will be cleansed. Sin is not the problem. God can take care of the sin problem. Our stubbornness and refusal to come to Jesus is the problem. Are you with me? But anyone who comes to Jesus in sincerity and says, Lord, please measure me, please cleanse me. Jesus will finish the work that he has begun. All right? So the everlasting gospel is proclaiming good news, saying, hey, the sanctuary is now open for cleansing. Come to the sanctuary. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus to be cleansed. Uh, I remember growing up, my parents are both shorter than I, and uh, one of the things I wanted to do was one of those ambitions childhood was to be as tall as my, first of all, my mother. She was the one, she's shorter than my dad, so I'm going to go for her first. I want to get as tall as I can. And every now and again, I'd walk up and just quietly sort of measure myself. Oh, not there yet. A week or so goes by and I'd stand, oh, well, one day I measured myself and what do you know, I was as tall as my mom. Well, that was a day of celebration for me. And then a little while went and I looked at my dad and I said, oh man, i got to see if I can reach his height. Now, if you saw my parents, you'd understand. They're both very short, so my dad said it's no big ambition. But anyway, I wanted to be measured by him. and I'd come up and try and measure and measure, and sure enough, one day I was as tall as my dad. Of course, now it's long gone, right? They're quite a bit shorter than I am. But measuring is not a scary thing. It is revealing progress and growth. As we come to Jesus to be measured, We are looking for progress. We are looking for growth. Yes, there are areas in our lives where there still has to be some special work. Jesus is the one that does that, but we come to be measured because we should be able to see some degree of spiritual growth, right? We might not be where we want to be, but by God's grace we shouldn't be where we started. There needs to be some progression, some growth. As long as we are coming to Jesus, To be measured, we have no fear of the judgment, for we are covered with His righteousness. Those who don't come to be measured, well, they don't receive His robe of righteousness. Does that make sense? So the message that goes to all the world with the proclamation of the everlasting gospel is a message of hope. It is a calling saying, come to be measured. The sanctuary is not going to be open for measuring forever. A time comes where the measuring is complete. And Jesus says, he that's holy, let him be holy still. He that's filthy, let him be filthy still. The work of the sanctuary ends. Jesus removes his priestly robe, puts on his kingly robe, and he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords. But that time has not yet come. So there is still hope. There is hope to tell the world, come be measured. God can save to the uttermost those who come to him through Jesus. For them, all things are possible. So now, having heard all of, all of that, is the three angels' message good news? Yes. Absolutely. To someone who is longing to be set free from sin, it's the best news ever. There is a way. I can be cleansed. I can be right with God. I can have peace. I can have hope. It's not me doing the work in myself, but it's Jesus who has promised to do work for me because I can't do it on my own. That's good news, Right? So we have good news to take to the world. We are the bearers of good news. We'll talk more about the three angels' message probably later on somewhere. Okay, well, who does evangelism then? Who does this work of taking good news to the world? Desire of Ages, page 167. It says, every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God as a missionary. So all of us have a part to do. A missionary is somebody who takes good news to the world. Not all can go as missionaries to foreign lands, but all can be home missionaries in their families and in their neighborhoods. Now Jesus, when he told the disciples to be his witnesses, he said, start in Jerusalem and then go to Judea, then go to Samaria, and then go to the ends of the world. Why did he say start in Jerusalem? Well, that's where they were. And Jesus said these words, he was on the Mount of Olives, he just go down the Mount of Olives up into Jerusalem Uh, through the Kidron Valley, and that's where the upper room was, and that's where the disciples gathered together, realizing the need of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them with power. They started witnessing in Jerusalem and in the area of Judea, Samaria, which was a non-Jewish territory, and then from there, it went everywhere, especially at the stoning of Stephen when the Apostle Paul now becomes the uh, apostle to the Gentile world. Here's an interesting report back in 1898. It was done by the Seventh-day Baptists. Now, the Adventist church in the early days was growing very rapidly. And there were a number of people wondering, why is it that the Adventist church is growing and my church is not growing? One group in particular that were interested in the Adventists were the Seventh-day Baptists. they of course, were Sabbath keepers like Adventists, but they weren't growing. So they launched this big study to try and figure out what the secret was of Adventist growth. This is what they found. December 28, 1898. Their answer to why the Adventists are growing, all Seventh-day Adventist clergymen are missionaries. They are not located pastors. They are busy teaching, preaching, and organizing churches. They said that's the secret of their growth. They're evangelistically minded. So the church members realize that their mission is evangelism, and they are willing to organize themselves and get involved in evangelism locally So freeing up the pastor to do more outreach and evangelism. And in the early days of the Adventist church, evangelists would go, he'd establish a church, he'd be there for a few months, and then he would head off to another territory, and the church would, by and large, manage itself, and the pastor would check in from time to time. But that's kind of the way they had set it up. So the whole church was evangelistically minded, They were focused on evangelism. It's interesting to note that in the early days of the Adventist movement, other churches were studying the Adventists to try and figure out how to grow. Seems like now Adventists are studying everybody else to figure out how to grow. Something went wrong, okay? If we follow the original plan, we shall have success. Now, did the Adventists realize this? This is an interview with Elder Starr, who was one of the early Advent leaders. This is 1886. This is an Indiana newspaper. Again, they were curious about why the evidence were growing. He says, in the first place, we have no settled pastors. Our churches are taught largely to take care of themselves while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in Newfield. Now, it doesn't mean that the churches were abandoned, that they didn't have any pastoral oversight. Of course, elders were trained to help out in the churches. These pastors did check in with the churches from time to time. They would sort of do the route, and they'd be visiting, But by and large, the church was self-contained and self-led, and the pastors were free to establish new churches. And so this was at least the mindset. And the early Adventists realized this. And then it goes on to say, besides this, we send out large numbers of coal porters with our books and our tracts who visit families. Last year, we had 125 coal porters across the country, because the church was very small back in those days. And then this is A.G. Daniels and uh, 1912, let me just back up and tell you a quick story about this. A.G. Daniels became, um, even a little bit before that, Ellen White went to Australia um, and came back to the U.S. in 1900. And she's settling in Almshaven in California. But while she was in Australia, she began to write letters to the brethren. And she was telling the brethren, we need to do more in the lines of evangelism. Well, at this point, the church had grown to the point where we had a few institutions, some educational institutions, some medical institutions, which took a lot of administrative responsibility, especially with church leadership. At the time, almost everything was directed from the general conference, from the brethren. It kind of controlled everything at that point. And she kept saying, we need to do evangelism. She wrote to the brethren who were leading the church, said, you need to take the lead in doing evangelism. And so they tried from time to time, but they were so busy with administrative responsibilities that kind of set evangelism on the back burner. Well, she's over in Australia, and she's writing these letters saying, do evangelism, do evangelism. She finally comes back to North America. She settles in uh, California at Almshaven. A.G. Daniels, who was a good friend of Ellen White, he comes, he's conference president at the time, and he's taking a trip out to the West Coast, and so he stops to visit the Sister White. And the story goes that he arrived in Almshaven and knocked on the door, and uh, said, you know, A.G. Daniels, I'm here to see Sister White. And the attendant said, well, Sister Daniels, just uh, Elder Daniels, just one moment. She went upstairs to call Ellen White, and he waited and waited, and finally she came back. She says, I'm sorry, Elder Daniels, Sister White won't see you. And he was somewhat surprised, because they were good friends. And he said, what do you mean? She said, no, but Sister White did give me a message. She said she won't see you until you do what God has told you to do. She didn't see him, that visit, that day. Well, this made quite an impression on A.G. Daniels. Later, he wrote, as he drove back by train, back to the East Coast, said one of the longest train rides of his life, but he got back and he wrote a letter to Ellen White. He said, do you want me to resign as General Conference President? She wrote back and said, no, just do what God has told you to do. Well, that's really what it took. A.G. Daniels realized, I need to make public evangelism a priority. So he himself started to do evangelistic meetings up and down the East Coast. And he inspired his pastors to do evangelism. And he promoted evangelism amongst the churches. And he emphasized mission work and sending missionaries overseas. And the momentum finally began to catch on After that famous 1900 general conference where they reorganized in missions and they had conferences and they reorganized divisions and put everything in place, it created the structure for just the sudden surge in missionary activity and evangelism. So Ellen White recognized the importance of evangelism. Anyway, this is what A.G. Daniels had to say. 1912, so that's after that little story when Ellen White had come back. He said, from the beginning of our work, we have recognized the very important division of our work for our ministers. We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. Now, there were some of the larger churches that had full-time pastors, but for the most part, the church members were trained to take care of themselves, pastors would check in from time to time, and they'd be under the oversight of the pastors, but the prime mission of the pastor was evangelism. He says, I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination, For when we cease our forward movement and we settle over our churches and stay by them and do their thinking and praying and their work, then our churches will begin to weaken, lose their life and spirit, and become paralyzed, fossilized, and the work will be weakened. Almost prophetic, right? They were pretty clear on what their success was. Keep the momentum going. Stay focused on evangelism. Now, things have changed in our day, back in the early days of the Adventist movement, evangelism wasn't just a two-week thing that would happen, but it was several months that would go by. Often these were um, churches that were established without any Adventist presence nearby, and so the evangelist would actually stay on for as much as six months to help ground the church and train up leaders and really make them clear in what we believe and the fundamentals. And that's still true today. When it comes to evangelism, we might do an evangelistic series that might last four weeks, but the work of evangelism doesn't end at the end of that four-week period. There is grounding that must occur. And I think one of the challenges we have when it comes to evangelism, you probably all heard this before, well, we baptized a whole lot of people. They came in the front door, but then what? They went out the back door. Or we baptized all these people, we haven't seen them. Well, that's because we stopped the evangelism at a crucial stage when we should not have stopped the evangelism. Even if they were baptized, it doesn't mean their spiritual growth is now over, but there's still a lot of growth that has to take place. The nurturing of new believers is so important when it comes to the church. That's evangelism. That is a continuation of evangelism. And that's something that we want to emphasize. You might be able to bring people and baptize some, but what's the point of baptizing them if you can't hold on to them? if they don't ground them, if they don't become part of the church, if they don't learn to connect with the body of Christ. Ellen White's view with reference to this. This is Manuscript 50. Again, notice the date, 1901. She says, As I traveled through the south on my way to the conference, I saw city after city that was unworked. What's the matter, she asks. The ministers are hovering over the churches which know the truth while thousands are perishing out of Christ. If the proper instruction were given, if the proper methods were followed, every church member would do his work as a member of the body. He would do Christian missionary work. Notice that? Every member would play a part. They would do Christian missionary work. All right. Next question we're going to consider. Why do we do evangelism? Well, of course, it's the proclamation of good news. Uh, There is an urgency to why we do evangelism. What's the urgency? The second coming. But what happens before the second coming? Close the probation. The sanctuary is open right now, but the sanctuary is not going to be open forever. And in order to be ready for the second coming of Christ, what needs to happen? We need to be measured, right? We need to be measured if we want to be cleansed. So there is an urgency to the proclamation of the gospel. Time is running out. Now is the day to come to be measured. Don't put it off till tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow might hold. But now is the time to come to be measured. So there is an urgency in the giving of the three angels' message. Soon Jesus says, that's it. Time's up. He that's holy, let him be holy still. He that's filthy. The sanctuary closes. Jesus finishes his priestly ministry. Now he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. So there is an urgency in our message. Why do we do evangelism? Evangelism is God's means of saving lost people. So it's the preaching of the Word that transforms people's lives. Uh, Now it is true, somebody can be be converted through reading, and I think it's important that we have literature ministry, that's important. Uh, Somebody can be converted through um, radio or television, but God's chosen means of saving souls is through public evangelism, through the preaching of the Word through Bible studies, through the preaching of the Word. That's God's chosen means. We'll look at some other quotes later on on that one. Secondly, evangelism is God's means of building His church. When the disciples were, um, before the crucifixion, they didn't understand the nature of Christ's kingdom, and so they were arguing amongst themselves as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom they thought Jesus was soon to establish. Uh, and after Jesus rose from the dead, they still didn't fully understand the mission of Christ, His work, but when Jesus told them that they were to take the gospel to the world, suddenly they realized, wow, we can't do this on our own. They also began to realize that our dysfunction within the church is hindering the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit if we're going to accomplish the mission. So the disciples, burdened by the mission given to them by Jesus, they were able to come together, they were able to confess their faults, they were able to unite with the purpose of taking the gospel to the world, then the Holy Spirit came with power. When the church gets united to do the work that God has called us to do, then it is that the Holy Spirit is able to come. We have a lot of discussion today about the need of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the latter rain. We really do. But how are we to get the latter rain? We've got to get serious about doing the work God's called us to do, and the latter rain will come, right? Right? The latter end comes. One preacher once put it, the Holy Spirit only hits a moving target. If you're not moving for Jesus, you're not going to get the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes on the church that is moving, that is active, that is committed to fulfilling the Great Commission, taking the gospel to the world. Evangelism is God's means of unifying the church. Nothing unites the church like evangelism. It keeps us focused on, on task. Evangelism is God's means of personal spiritual growth. When you get involved in giving somebody a Bible study, or even if you're working with someone and you begin praying for them and you're looking for opportunities to share truth with that person, it helps us grow spiritually. I remember I was a fairly new, I was a student at the time, I was more than even a pastor, and my wife had a work colleague, and she began to share with her a little bit. and um, She came back and said, you know, my friend wants to have Bible studies. And I said, oh great, I'd be happy to give her Bible studies. As I said, I was a theology student, you know, I had all of the verses lined up, I was ready to go and I met with this person and we met and we began Bible studies and uh, she was very intelligent, she asked good questions and I remember one Bible study we did on, on the state of the dead and I had all the verses lined up and I gave her these different verses and suddenly she went to a verse that I'd never seen before and she was reading from the King James Version and it says, while her soul was departing her, I'd never read that verse before. Talk about Rachel at the death, and says while her soul was departing her, she called out the name of uh, Benjamin, and she said, "Well, there it is." The Bible says the soul was leaving her. I didn't know what to say. I didn't even know that verse existed there. So you know what it forced me to do? Forced me to go back and study it out. <laughs> then I began to realize that you got different words in the original, and you have breath and soul, and they were used interchangeably in the King James, in particular a better translation would have been as the spirit was departing, or as the breath was departing, but some translator put in soul there. And so I had to study this all out, and then I went back to her, and I was able to give her a good answer. And she said, oh, well, now that makes sense, because that ties in with some of the other verses that you see. Well, if I'd never given that Bible study, I probably would never have run into that, at least not at that point, I wouldn't have learned the answer. So when we share our faith, and and when we do a Bible study, we're going to have questions arise, And they say, oh, I never thought of that before. That forces us to go study. Every week, Pastor Doug and myself, we do a radio program called Bible Answers Live. And it's a call-in radio show. We never know what's going to come, what question might come. Now, many of the questions are ones that we've heard before. You get a number of similar questions that come in. Sometimes you get a question you've never heard before. We kind of like those. It can be a little tough at the moment, but you know what? We make a note of that and say, we're going to go study that one out. That's a good question. We want to have an answer next time. So when you share your faith, that forces you to dig a little bit deeper. And that results in deeper spiritual growth individually. And then, of course, evangelism is God's means of finishing the work. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be taken to all the world as a witness unto all nations. Then Jesus said what? Then the end will come. Then probation can close. Because everyone has had an opportunity to hear the gospel. They've made a choice. Probation can close, then Jesus comes. What does it mean to be a missionary? Testimonies, Volume 9. God expects personal service from everyone to whom he is entrusted a knowledge of the truth for this time. That's our last statement there. God expects each of us to do something with reference to what we know. Now, we might not know everything. And sometimes the tendency is to think, well, I don't know enough. I can't give a Bible study because what happens if they ask me something I don't know? Well, I don't think there's anyone that has everything down just perfect, but you know something, right? So start with what you do know. Start sharing what you can. And if they ask you a question that you don't know, there's always a good answer. That's a good question. Let me get some more information for you on that. And then go study and figure it out and share with them the truth. So we can't wait until we know everything. We can't wait until we are sanctified and perfect before we're willing to share with somebody else. Matter of fact, in order for our spiritual growth, we need to share. Otherwise, we won't grow spiritually. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.